Again, these are the words of the Apostle Paul to his assistant, Timothy. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And this is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul is basically resuming uh, his instructions to Timothy that he had given in chapter 1, where he's exhorting Timothy um, to not be ashamed of the testimony. If you look back to chapter 1, you see that he's encouraging uh, Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God that was given to him by the laying on of his hands. For God has given us not a spirit of fear, uh, but of power of love and self-control. And so he, he tells them in verse 8, to not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. That's his main exhortation here. 2 Timothy being one of the last letters written by Paul uh, that we have in the New Testament. This is just probably months or years away from his execution. He is in prison, as he is suggested by what he has said there. Don't be ashamed of me as his prisoner. He's actually in chains. And we see that a little bit uh, later in uh, Timothy. He references his chains again. And he says, but the word of God is not chained. So he's giving these exhortations to Timothy to continue on in the ministry. Timothy, who he's he's known for almost two decades at this point. He's known Timothy since he was probably a late, maybe a a teenager. And now Timothy is to continue the ministry of sharing this ministry of sharing the gospel in the churches that he's been assigned to. And so he gives them this exhortation to... uh, Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Notice that in verse 8. Well, he resumes that at the beginning of chapter 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then he says also in verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So he's repeating the charge to Timothy here. And notice there the strength that is needed for this task. And he reminds him here that the strength in the face of challenging ministry comes from God's grace. Now, I want to say this word as well. As you're reading this, you're reading the words of the Apostle Paul to a minister, Timothy, and you're thinking, oh, is this all about like the, you know, these are called the pastoral epistles. Is this only about... Uh, instruct is this is this book really only relevant for like church leaders and i would contend uh, that is the subject 
the, the main focus that's given here, but the instructions to Timothy here are applicable to any Christian who serves Christ in their various vocations and occupations. So through these instructions to Timothy, believer, you can get instructions for what you need to be strengthened in the midst of suffering for Christ as you're sharing him in the world. So strength in the face of challenging ministry. Ministry here is not limited to those who are holding offices of the church, like pastor, elder, deacon, but to anybody who is serving Christ by extension. So notice the strength that is required for this. Verse 1, you then, my child, as he does many times, he refers to him as my child, like my beloved child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Again, echoing what he had said earlier in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, where he says, fan into flame the gift of God, for God, is, uh, for God gave us a spirit not of fear and of power, and of, um, but of power and love and self-control. So there's a, a reference to spirit. Some translations leave it as a small case S, spirit, uncapitalized. But many understand this is the spirit, not of fear and of power, is a reference to the work of the Holy Spirit that he has. Love and self-control being elsewhere described as some of the fruit of the spirit. And then as well in verse 8, therefore, of chapter 1, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about me nor uh, of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel. That's the main thrust. By the power of God. And here perhaps it's a reference to God the Father. So notice there's a, the Trinitarian emphasis. Paul's just linking all of these together. That strength in the face of challenging ministry comes from the fullness of our triune God by his spirit by the power that we get from the father and then as we see here in verse 1 be, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus that is the son it's the first thing to notice there <clears throat> here's the second thing to notice about Paul's repeating this charge to Timothy is verse 2 and what you have heard from me entrust to faithful men what you have heard from me in trust to faithful men. In the face of challenging ministry that Paul has experienced, he's in jail, that Timothy is experiencing in various sufferings and difficulties, Paul reminds him, reminds him of what it is that his main task is to do. And that is to transmit the apostolic message the message of the apostles to transmit that to others. Or we could put it this way. The apostolic message is to be transmitted through discipleship and multiplication. Again, back to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Notice verses 12 and 14. I am convinced, Paul writes, that he, God, is able to guard until that day, what has been entrusted to me? And this, I believe, this entrusted deposit to, to him is the apostolic message. It's the gospel. Because notice what it says in the next verse. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. 
here. He is saying, I have received this. It has been entrusted to me by Christ Jesus, and I have entrusted it to you, Timothy. So follow the pattern of sound words. This is a message. The sound words that you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then he gives the exhortation in verse 14 of chapter 1. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So notice this transmission. This carrying of this message that the Apostle Paul has entrusted it to Timothy. And now Timothy is entrusted with that gospel. That apostolic message. And then Paul now exhorts him in chapter 2. So now you need to entrust that to faithful men and to others as well. Notice kind of the, the chain of custody that's happening here. <clears throat> Verse 18 of chapter 1. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. He gives the instructions at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, oh, Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Because God is able to guard what is entrusted to me. He's going to guard what is entrusted to you. And then notice he continues this on in verse 2 of this chapter. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So here's the chain of custody. The message was given by Christ to the Apostle Paul. And Paul has now taken that message and he has given it now to Timothy. He's entrusting it to Timothy. And Timothy is to entrust it to faithful men in verse 2. And those faithful men are to pass this on as well to others also. This passing on of this apostolic message. So there really is a, a succession of this apostolic message, but it's not a succession in an office like the, the papacy. It's not in a person. It's in the message. And it goes from Christ to Paul. We saw this. It's been entrusted to me, he says. First Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, to the Corinthians, he says. That the Lord, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. He received this from the Lord. Also in first Corinthians chapter 15. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is what Paul has received. Now, Paul did not receive this from the twelve. Paul received this from Christ himself. Galatians chapter 1. Paul makes this very point. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel... For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Christ Jesus. So even then, Paul is not an innovator. Paul held unchangingly to the message he himself had received from Christ. He was not at liberty to amend or revise or alter that message. 
This is a deposit that is entrusted to him. The language there is of a kind of a safekeeping. You're just, I'm, you know, think of it as kind of like the, uh, the what are the big heavy-duty trucks that carry the money from bank to bank? Those even around anymore? Are we moving to digital world? What's that called? Armored car. Yes, think of it like that. It's an armored car that the guy inside has no liberty to adjust the amounts, right? Paul received this from Christ himself. It was a deposit entrusted to him. But it was not unique to him. The the 12 uh, apostles also were entrusted by Christ with that same message. It just so happens that when Paul, who God had saved Paul and brought him um, from being a, a hater of the church and a persecutor of the church, and he brought him to being an apostle, he called him to an apostle, and that he meets up with the other apostles, and they realize that they too, we all had the same message. So when he refers to it as my gospel, he's not saying my unique brand of the gospel or my gospel as in uh, this is my version of it. it might differ from the other 12 guys, you know, but, but this is my version. No, nothing like that at all. It's the same gospel. And notice how it goes from Paul to to Timothy. We saw that verse 14 of chapter one. Timothy, likewise, then was to receive the message and was not at liberty to admise, to revise or amend that message at all. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you, he says. And we know that that's the apostolic message. We saw that in verse 13, the pattern of sound words. And friends, this process is to continue today. We assume that Timothy did what Paul exhorted him to do and that that message was then entrusted to faithful men faithful men why do they need to be faithful because they need faithful not to alter that message and that they likewise pass that down to others as well that's the second thing to notice here and then the last the third thing which kind of leads to his metaphors that he gives in the rest of this section the the third thing to notice is his exhortation to share in suffering as a good soldier we saw that Chapter 1, verse 8. Join with me in suffering for the gospel. Or verse 3. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. To share in suffering in service to Christ. This is kind of his third repeat. This is the emphasis that goes through all of this chapter. Now here, all through the letter. But here in chapter 2, he gives a couple of metaphors to kind of drive home this idea. And so we'll look at these, these three metaphors for how Timothy is to continue to endure suffering in sharing in suffering for the gospel. So notice the first, uh, here I'll give you all three. The first one is the metaphor of a soldier. The second one is a metaphor of an athlete. Did you see that? And the third metaphor is the metaphor of a farmer. So a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. The first metaphor for sharing and suffering in service to Christ is the one in soldier, verses 3 and 4. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Any of you know soldiers? Soldiers as family members. Been a soldier. Or seaman. Or, you know, air, huh? Sailor, Sailor yes. Uh, or airman. Or uh, coast guard. Or any space. Anybody know anybody on the space force? No? 
So a soldier, share in the suffering. And he says, and this is how you should liken it to, as being a soldier. Notice what he says in verse 4. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. There's three times the, the main Greek word for soldier is used here. A couple, well, a couple times in a verbal sense and one time as a noun. Um, so the one uh, serving as a soldier. A soldier uh, in verse 4 is used as a noun. The one suffering as a good soldier. So the one serving as a good soldier. And then it's related to the one. And the one who enlisted him could be kind of uh, understood as uh, the one who soldiered him. The one who made him a soldier. So three times the term is used. And this is a frequent metaphor used by the Apostle Paul in his other uh, letters. Used in a lot of different senses. Sometimes it's in reference to uh, just the, the regular Christian life. And sometimes it's used in reference specifically to the ministry endeavors. But in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18, again speaking to Timothy about this charge that has been entrusted to him. My child, in accordance with the prophecies made about you, that by them you will wage the good warfare. Holding faith in a good conscience. All of us are probably very familiar with Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, where uh, the Apostle Paul talks about the spiritual warfare of believers. Two times in Paul's letters, he references a, a colleague of his, of his, and he uses the term uh, uh, fellow soldier. In Philippians and in Philemon, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. And Archippus, our fellow soldier. Here, the emphasis for Timothy is on single-minded devotion and focus. What's the picture here of, of being a soldier? The, the picture is of doing hard things with single-minded devotion and focus to who it is you're serving. You are a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And I like how he says this in, in verse 4. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. And the, the Greek term here is the, it's where we get the word uh, pragmatic. In other words, it's kind of, it's kind of like saying uh, don't get caught up or twisted in or like, like a braid. Don't, don't let your life get braided up in the pragmatic things of life. Don't get distracted by worldliness. Don't divide your time. He's not saying that servants of Christ can't get a little R&R or rest and re relaxation or vacation. But he's saying, don't, don't get distracted from what it is that your, your main task is. And who is it you are serving? Who is your commanding officer? Your priority is on serving Christ as your commanding officer. Why? Because Christ is the one who soldiered you. He's the one who recruited you. He enlisted you. So stay focused on serving Christ, even in the midst of suffering and hardship. That's what Paul is telling Timothy here. And so for you, Christian, you are a soldier, in a way, in the Lord's army. Remember that song as a kid? I'm in the Lord's army. 
It kind of, yes, sir. <laughs> it, it seems to have fallen out of favor, but in reality, that's a metaphor that's used uh, often for, the, for those who in the Christian life. You are in the Lord's army. You should think of yourself, I'm enlisted to the Lord. Christ is your commanding officer. Don't get involved in, don't get distracted or caught up in the pragmatics of life. Especially if they're not contributing to fulfilling the commands of your superior officer. You should have, you should, and whether you're in an office of like a deacon or an elder of a church, or whether you're just serving as a Christian, you should have military grade focus on serving Christ in this world and following his orders. You live to please Christ. Okay. Who, by the way, is in fact a warrior. When we, when using this metaphor of being a soldier of Christ, don't think of him as a, a civilian oversight. One of the pictures of, of Christ himself is of being a warrior, the commander. In the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament, Yahweh is frequently pictured as a, a warrior. Uh, scholars refer to this as the, the divine warrior. It, it appears all over the place. Um, but one main place is this great verse from Exodus chapter 15, verse 3. Uh, and this is the great song by the sea after Israel is brought out um, against the armies of Pharaoh who have been defeated at the Red Sea. And one of the lines in the song is, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. It's just one of many pictures. But going into the New Testament, Jesus also is a Lord, a conqueror, a commander who has conquered Satan and his entire army. He's conquered death. And he did so through his own death and resurrection. Colossians chapter 2. When Paul's writing to the Colossians, he says, You were dead in your transgressions, your trespasses and the uncircumcision in your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Wonderful. We, we, we recite this one often as one of our absolutions, our hearing the assurance of, uh, of, that our sins are forgiven in the gospel. And it's the next line. In verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The image here, many point out, is that this is language that's used of, of a, a general of an army who has conquered another general. Whether it's like a Roman a general of an army who's conquered the other one and he's kind of seized them, seized them, put them in chains and is carrying them through the streets, kind of parading them in a very shameful way to um, exemplify his victory. So the victory of Christ on the cross is disarming the rulers and authorities, disarmed them, taken away all of their weaponry, and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. It's a great picture. This is the victory that Jesus has won. 
And he did it through his own, in a very ironic way, through his own death and suffering. So Jesus is Lord. He's not only conquered sin and death already as a mighty warrior through his suffering and death. He will also return and as a mighty warrior who will conquer and destroy the enemies of God on the last day. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. For those of us who, who love Jesus and we worship Jesus, I think it's helpful that we have a holistic picture of who Jesus is. Is Jesus meek and mild so much that he would not, uh, a smoldering wick he won't snuff out, a bruised reed he won't break? Yes. Is he tender to those who are suffering under their sins and, uh, and are heartbroken? Yes, he comes. He brings the children to him. He says, let them come to me for the kingdom of heaven is like this. But there's another side of Jesus that sometimes I think is often neglected. And it's the side of Jesus who has wrath against the enemies of God. Those who are set themselves up as, as lovers of wickedness. And to the Christians who are suffering a terrible persecution in the first century, Jesus gives this message, this vision to John, and John writes this down in Revelation chapter 19. It's a picture of when Christ will return. Notice verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened up, and behold, a white horse. This is usually the ones that the commanders would ride on. A white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Christ is that divine warrior. A couple things to notice. I know you might think I'm weird. Well, I like that passage so much. I do. I like this passage of Jesus. The first thing is to notice, notice the robes in this passage. That Christ's robe is dipped in blood. That's not his own blood. I think that's quite clear from verse 15. The, the imagery of treading the wine press, wine press of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. It's kind of 
Uh, the picture is of the ancient wine presses when they would harvest the grapes and they would put them in kind of this stone uh, cut out of the ground basin and then they would stomp on them with their bare feet and there would be a little trough where the juice of it would go and trickle into uh, a separate container to, to make the wine. And so this, even in the Old Testament, this image of picture is of... Uh, this imagery is of the crushing of enemies under your feet and their blood being poured out. So what's on his robe is not his own blood. And then second, notice his army's robes. His army, they're not angels, right? Uh, the, the armies, verse 14, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. Another reference to linens white and pure. His army here, these are not angels. These are, re these are resurrected saints who have been given white robes. How did they get the white robes? If you were to turn back, Revelation chapter 7, where the angel says to, to John, speaking of those who are gathered around the throne worshiping, he says, this throng praising the Lamb are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Right? And Rachel reminds me of this. Uh, I, for, I said this in a message years ago, and she, she always reminds me of this every now and then. But apparently I said this as an appeal. You must wash your robes in the blood of the lamb or his robes will be dipped with yours. You must wash your robes in the blood of the lamb or his robe will be dipped with yours. There's an offer of peace to the enemies of God. That your that your your clothes will be washed, your sin will be washed away in the blood of the lamb and you will be given a white robe, pure and clear. But if you insist on being an enemy of God and living in righteousness and rejecting his son, the vision of the end is that the blood of the wicked will be splattered on him as he destroys. Christ is the divine warrior who will carry out his wrath against the wicked. Now, some find this uncomfortable. I find this a tremendous amount of comfort. Because of the wickedness that you see in the world today, where you're longing for justice to be done. How many of you see that? How many of you see injustice all the time? And you just lament that there's no justice for the absolute wickedness that you see about, that causes you to weep and mourn things that are done to women, things that are done to little children that should never have happened. Absolutely to those who are destroyed in the wombs. And you're sitting here going, when will justice come? Friends, justice will come. Christ in his, in his wisdom and in his timing will come and will bring all to justice. But he offers, he still offers that peace to those who would come to him. That's the first thing to notice. But the second one is, is this picture that Christ is the divine and conquering warrior. He did conquer Satan and death through his suffering and death, and he will conquer 
in full at the judgment on the last day. And so he really is our commanding officer. As a good soldier of Christ, you know that you have a commanding officer who's there. So endure suffering as a good soldier of Christ, knowing that the battle is tough. I think that's what Paul is encouraging Timothy. The battle is going to be tough, but you have a leader who is conquered. That's the first metaphor for suffering, sharing and suffering in service to Christ as a good soldier. Here's the second metaphor, the one as an athlete. Verse 5. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So the athlete image here is adding to and supplementing the soldier one. So it's share in suffering as an athlete, the way it's kind of structured. And the athlete picture here is used by Paul elsewhere for, for discipline, for endurance, for purpose. And here Paul makes this reference to uh, according to the rules. Just the adverb um, for lawfully, like an athlete does his athletics lawfully. And I think sometimes it's understood to be like, well, obviously don't cheat or you'll get disqualified. You know, like, I don't know, like stealing signs electronically from the other team's dugout. You know, and I'm still bitter about that all these years. <laughs> right. Congratulations to the Houston Astros for winning their first World Series last year or whenever it was. Did it not? OK, only some people get that. Um, so it's not so there's a sense of like don't cheat and don't be disqualified um, but many commentators see it's actually more than just not cheating it's actually um, you have to follow the rules required in training in order to compete Donald Guthrie a commentator says that in the ancient Greek Olympics both at Athens and at Corinth um, he says this each athlete for those Olympics had to state on oath that he had fulfilled the necessary 10 months training before he was permitted to enter the contest. Okay? So it's not like, okay, you know, if you're running on a race course, you know, not just cutting a corner to gain an advantage or something like that. This is, so it's not just like, are you doing it law? Are you competing lawfully? It's more in the sense, like, did you follow the laws that were required as far as the entire training and preparation for it? Did you, did you on oath actually train according to the protocol and the requirement for the 10 months? If you couldn't vow that and say yes, then you were not allowed to compete. So here, when Paul is saying an athlete is not crowned unless he competes lawfully, he's saying an athlete is not crowned unless he goes and, and agrees to follow the entire training regimen required to compete. Did you follow the workout protocol? Or one commentator says, uh, refers to, to submit to rigorous training requires self-discipline and a willingness to forego earthly pleasures. That's what Paul is telling Timothy. Are you willing to forego Will you train lawfully? Will you, will you compete 
as an athlete in this way. Elsewhere, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain the prize. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So Paul says, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. It's interesting saying, I don't run aimlessly. I'm not a recreational jogger. I don't just jog around the neighborhood. No, you no. I run lawfully. I run that it was required in order to compete for the, the for the 10 months in order to compete. So you have to have a plan. How many of you have worked out? Like you go, I want to work out. I want to like get in shape. I want to get stronger or whatever. And then you just kind of go out and do it. And you didn't, don't follow a plan. And then how many of you kind of feel like I really struggle following, you know, I'm not, I'm not achieving results. I, I would say it's because you don't have a plan. Like you don't have a program. You don't have an agenda. You don't have the schedule. And success for every competitor to get the crown, this is a competition, it, it requires following the discipline. So, in other words, this is not rec league. This is not weekend warrior stuff. You have to practice. You have to discipline yourself. You have to master the fundamentals. And the training is not the fun part. How many of you are athletes and competed? Is, is practice the fun part? Eh, is, is the game fun? Yes, right? But the, the training, the game is fun. The competition is fun. The training is not the fun part, but it's necessary. So how does this relate to ministry? Well, don't do shortcuts. Do ministry as ministry to be, is to be done. Do not find any hacks. And if so, you are, if you compete this way, you will be crowned. The word here is from, from the Olympic Games. It refers to that the, the wreath that's made out of evergreen leaves. And in Olympic competitions, only the winner got it in the ancient world. I think the second and third place podium thing, that's a, the modern game's invention. Like they really like, it's like somebody was like, do you know how hard it is to put these, you know, leaf wreaths together it's like we only do one and so only one person gets gets it however in ministry to christ in service to christ every faithful servant is crowned everyone is crowned at the end turn to second timothy chapter four just a couple chapters to the right Paul says to Timothy, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. His death is near. He's about ready to, to, he knows he's going to be executed soon. And the time of my departure has come. He's going to die. I have, what? Fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. So Paul's saying, like, should the soldier thing? The athlete thing, I did, I did it. 
I did it. Timothy, you too, do it. I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And then, what does he say? Verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Right? That, that wreath. The wreath of righteousness. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but, to, uh, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So friends, friends, share in suffering as you serve Christ. Be like an athlete. You're training, you're training yourselves. You're training for yourselves for godliness. Don't, don't make this, don't make this a weekend warrior thing. In your service to Christ, do so competitively. And follow the protocol for it. Let's get, let's get past rec league. And serve Christ. And then lastly, the last metaphor. Um, the last metaphor for sharing and suffering and service to Christ is one of a farmer. It is the hardworking farmer, verse 6, who ought to have the first share of the crop. Crops. Here's using a, a very common image in the ancient world, the world from uh, the picture from agriculture, and so this is farming. Now, you know, farming is a as um, a, a what a, what an interesting career. Anybody here who gardens? Some people garden, okay, but nobody. Anybody here a, a farmer? Like where you have to make your living on this. He uses this image of a, a farmer who, if you got the basic idea from farming here it one part of the year you prepare the soil you clear the land you plant the seeds you do whatever tending to whether it is vines or the plants as you go you remove weeds and then you wait for the harvest to come so there's a lot of hard laborious work involved in being a farmer and there's a great deal of time from your labor to when you actually get a reward. There's a great deal of time. I think that's a little bit behind here, Paul's image. And he adds the term here, hardworking. Hardworking farmer. That, that Greek term here means to work until you're exhausted or until you're tired. To where you have to take a rest. You have to take a nap. It's hard work. I remember my next door neighbor when I was a kid. His, um, this was in Central Valley of California. And his dad was, um, was a farmer. About 40 minutes or so. 45 minutes outside of like, the town area there. He lived in town. But he would travel. And um, he was a farmer. They did oh, carrots. Uh, and but uh, different things at different times of year. And one year he was doing cotton, and so he, my friend says, "Hey, do you want to, you know, like just a little side gig?" I was 15, so I couldn't have like the full-on summer job. And I said, "Sure, I'll take it." And so we got up at like, like, oh, dark 30 something like that. I mean, it was really early in the morning, and we drive out there. I mean, I'm falling asleep just driving there. We get there, the sun hasn't come up yet, and here's what you have to do: you have to pick up. 21 foot 
galvanized, two inch galvanized pipe and you had to disconnect it and then lift it up over your head like in a press and then walk 25 rows through the cotton that was up to your chest and then drop it and then walk back and go do the whole thing. And we worked, we worked for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours until we got our first break. And we took a break and I said, how long have we been working? We go about 90 minutes. <laughs> it was so exhausting. As a matter of fact, when we finally got to the lunch break, we go back to the little farmhouse thing and they're all talking and stuff. I literally felt, I laid on the carpet. I was kind of one of those where you just kind of get comfortable. I fell asleep, drool coming out of my mouth on the carpet. Really embarrassing. For a 15 year old boy, you know, like it was like, I was exhausted. Hard work. But look at what the hard work is to, to, to yield. The hardworking farmer gets the first share of the crops. So as you're suffering and serving Christ, you may not see the reward for a long time. You actually might be laboring quite a bit until you actually get to see that. But when you do, you share in it. You get to share that reward. I think the point here is, is to remind that as you're serving Christ, there's a delayed gratification. There's a delayed satisfaction. Laboring for the Lord is never in vain. So as you're, as you're suffering in serving Christ and you're sharing in that, remember that as you're doing that work, you may be discouraged and not see the fruit of it for a great deal of time. But remember, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. How many of you have unbelieving family members that you are praying for? How many of you have unbelieving family members that you've been praying for for a long time? How many of you have unbelieving family members that you just quit praying for? And to my shame, I would say that. I've had unbelieving family members I prayed for, prayed for, prayed for, and then the prayers got further and further apart until eventually I just quit. And then years later, they come to Christ and excitedly tell me that. And I was so overwhelmed with joy for them and so saddened that I gave up, that I quit. It was embarrassing. It was humbling. Friends, laboring in the Lord is never in vain. The hardworking farmer ought to have the first share in the crops. And just know that it's going to be a great deal of time, perhaps in many ways, a great deal of time before you do see the, the yield and the results that would come from that. So friends, as you're sharing and suffering with, for Christ, be like the hardworking farmer. Don't quit. Labor and anticipation of the reward of the crops that is coming. James chapter 5 says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And then he says this, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. See how the farmer waits? So friends, as you're sharing in suffering in your service to Christ, be like the farmer. Keep laboring and working for the laboring the Lord is not in vain. And then Paul ends with these words. 
Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Brothers and sisters, may you think over the words here as well of the Apostle Paul. And then may the Lord Jesus himself, by the Holy Spirit, give you understanding in these as, you're, as you share and enter in that suffering and serving for Christ. Amen? Let's pray together before we come to the table. Let's stand with me. Indeed, our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. And the encouragement that we get from the Apostle Paul and that by your spirit we'll take that word and apply it to our lives. That you will um, assist not just the elders or deacons who serve in a church, but to all believers who are who attempt to serve your son, Jesus Christ, in their lives and the difficulty and the hardship and the suffering that will come that we may want to. To, to give up or change direction or, or something. God, I pray that you would take your word and to bring encouragement to, to everyone here this morning. May we take to heart that as we're engaging in this ministry of passing down this entrusted deposit of the, the gospel, whether as a, as a teacher who's teaching it to to a church or to somebody who's teaching it to a friend in a, in a Bible study or to parents who are teaching it to their children. You pray that you would sustain us in that even as it goes through very difficult times. And so help us to keep in mind that the three metaphors of the pictures. Help us to be a good soldier who's serving our commander, Jesus Christ. Help us to to be like the athlete who vows to compete and go through the difficulty of training the right way. And then help us to think of the farmer who works hard in anticipation of a crop. In all of those, it's difficult work. But in all of those things, you are a gracious provider for us. And so help us to live that out for you. And now, gracious Heavenly Father, we come before this table that you have given to your people. The supper of our Lord Jesus that he's given to us as this means of grace. That as you have fed us now with your word that now by your spirit goes into our hearts to encourage us in the faith. You've also given us bread and the fruit of the vine for us to take in and as bread nourishes our bodies and gives us strength and the wine refreshes our spirits so this bread and this cup remind us of the nourishment that we receive from the good news of the gospel and the joy and the refreshment that we receive from the work of Christ for us so we come before you to take this meal, remembering the work of Christ, confessing our need for him, and celebrating it with joy and gladness. So we give you thanks for this in Christ's mighty name, and all God's people said, Amen.